Welcome to the Health Trust Candid Conversations podcast. I'm Crystal Duggar, Vice President of Clinical Services at Health Trust. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this episode, we're highlighting a portion of a COVID-19 vaccine current state webinar that focuses on hesitancy, where a panel of experts discuss topics like vaccine education and awareness, encouraging vaccines among African-Americans and Latino communities, and the importance of vaccine vigilance. If you are looking for an in-depth discussion about COVID-19 vaccines and why vaccination matters so much right now, this is a conversation for you. I encourage you to share this information with your friends, family, and coworkers. So I wanna go ahead and move forward in, into basically the second half of what we wanted this conversation to be focused on, which is really confidence in the vaccines and vaccine hesitancy. And this can go in a multitude of different directions, but just for um, everyone listening, this is data that's reported from the CDC, it's survey data. And so it's a, um, you know, sort of a small group, um, but enough to get some information from it. And you'll see that it varies um, from September to December. So this is a four month time period where they looked at all adults, you can see adults over the age of 65, essential workers, and that's not just essential healthcare workers, that's essential workers in other industries as well. And then the ages is 18 to 64 years of age with underlying medical conditions. And it may be surprising to everyone that there's still a good 30% or so of the population that's very hesitant to get a vaccine. You can see the ones that are most likely to get vaccinated are the ones that are older over the age of 65. And I think Michelle in her podcast said here in Tennessee, those over the age of 75, that rate's actually quite high. Um, but the thing that's interesting are the ones that are hesitant. And if you look at why they're hesitant, primarily the graph off to your right, um, the majority are either worried about side effects, they don't trust the process, even the nomenclature, Operation Warp Speed itself kind of connotes that it was done in a really, really fast way having genetic vaccines um, described for Pfizer and Moderna makes people nervous and anxious about somehow we're modifying their genetic DNA in some way. Um, so there's a lot of different reasons, but these are kind of the most common reasons um, that are cited. And then if you look at the populations um, and the racial disparities, and, and Michael, this is where I, where I wanna pull you into the conversation if you don't mind. Um, there's clearly an increased risk in the Black and Hispanic population, and unfortunately, that's the same population that has probably a higher rate of distrust in the entire in the entire process. So, Michael, to you now, if you don't mind, how do we target these highest risk populations, and and what have you heard, and what's your perspective on how we tackle this? Okay, thank you. So, I think there are a couple of things. Um, First of all, if we step back, I, I'm looking at this data and, and the data I've seen kind of over the last couple of months. And what's striking to me is that the difference um, between, for instance, white, non-Hispanic and, and black or other minorities is not wider, right? Um, and so what that tells me is that there's an underlying 
baseline distrust in the system that cross the cost, cost, cuts across all races. And, you know, people have described this as both a pandemic and an infodemic, where we have just global misinformation and disinformation, which actually, when you think about it, has actually been very sophisticated and stylized. So it's, it's been very intentional in some, in some regards. And some of it is also quite organic. Now, when we start thinking about the more at-risk populations, um, I certainly think that we have to take a multimodal intentional approach. The first thing we have to do is acknowledge, um, and then we have to empathize and listen, and then we have to communicate without judging or coercing people. Um, so first of all, um, we have to acknowledge that there are real historical antecedents for the distrust of the healthcare um, industry, the medical field, and science. And this is very true in minority communities where there are long kind of lived oral histories of things that have been done um, going back several hundred years, but but even as recently as 25 years ago. Um, and and it's true that there have been a lot of changes, but but quite often people don't don't feel hurt on this. And then we really have to kind of empathize because at the same time as as these factors and the underlying uh, determinants of health exist. A lot of these um, same demographics are also burdened by food and income insecurity. Um, a good example is in hospitals, a large majority of supportive staff um, are minorities. So, you know, people who are cleaning the, cleaning the hospital, preparing the food, um, you know, drawing labs, people who don't often have job flexibility, who can't work from home. So not only do they come in um, with with a lot of distrust, they also come in with real social and structural inequities and also come in in a way that they are more exposed. And then, of course, we have to communicate the full story. And so, you know, I, I spent a lot of time over the last year, um, like a lot of my, my um, fellow acute medicine doctors did, really combing through the data, looking for things that work regarding treatment and efficacy um, of, of, of therapies for severe SARS-CoV-2, and that, that was our focus in the ICU. But we also came across a lot of real interesting myths. Um, and so we have to be clear about communicating, one, what has changed since the 1970s or the 1940s um, when, you know, African-Americans and minorities were experimented on. What, what were the things put in place? And this, you know, we have to be as transparent, clear, and coordinating, coordinated in our messaging as possible. You know, entire, an entire um, aspect of healthcare has developed that deals and focuses on the ethics of medicine and, you know, the proper conduct of, of research um, and oversight that really was an outflowing of, of you know, the result of the, the Tuskegee experiments. And a lot of people don't know this. Um, we also have to be very clear um, about the risks of COVID because people really need to understand if they're refusing the vaccine, what is the alternative? And, you know, I think people sometimes focus on deaths and they think if they don't die, that's the end of it. But people lose sight of the fact that, you know, the deaths are just the tip of the iceberg. You know, there is a huge burden of morbidity that is not quite always considered when you think about, you know, four or five times the death rate is in the ICU and maybe up to 12 times the death rate is in hospitals. 
And, you know, we have only just started to understand um, the long COVID syndromes um, and other things and the neurologic effects of COVID. And so when people think, well, I'll risk it, they're not entirely sure what they're risking. What we do know, having, you know, done a lot of fighting to rescue and salvage and do damage control in the ICU, is that when people get very, very sick with COVID, um, uh, the results and the burden are pretty severe. And then, of course, we have to communicate the science. And I think for that, we really need to be intentional about who does the communicating and how it's done. A lot of the campaigns that are going on around the country are really focused on getting people to be clear and honest about their own concerns. So healthcare workers who, for instance, have taken it um, are are very helpful in this regard. And if the healthcare worker looks like the person that you're talking about or talking to, then then that's even more effective. I, for instance, was quite um, curious to, to look at the data myself before I decided I was going to get vaccinated. I really wanted to get vaccinated. And when I looked at the data, it was very clear to me that, you know, that there was ample evidence of the safety and efficacy. And communicating that, I think, in very clear terms and letting people then have the empowerment to choose. Um, I do think that it's it's important to remember that there are some people that are really so far extreme that they'll probably never listen to you. But I think giving them the opportunity and arming them with the right information um, is the key. Um, and then, of course, really just I think uh, there's a there's a um, the COVID collaborative just put out a series of ads which I thought were excellent. Um, being very coordinated and intentional about the messaging and the messaging around myths and falsehoods. I think we just have to be as clear about that as possible. And then the final piece I was going to talk about in terms of targeting this is is really getting out to where people live, literally and figuratively. So yes, we need to get messengers out there, but we also need to make sure that they're vaccine outposts where they live. And you know, some of the work that that Dr. Fiscus and, and the Department of Health are doing is just really, really commendable because they're getting out there and they're making arrangements to get out there, so people are not having to travel into the big city or travel to big centers to get vaccinated. Um, uh, and and so I think that you know that kind of multi-modal, modal, deliberate, almost a marketing campaign is what's needed, especially when you think about how complicated and sophisticated some of the disinformation has been. Yeah, no, Michael, thank you. I appreciate that. And that was one of the things I was going to ask um, was, you know, who the messenger should be, right? Who's the trusted advisor that some of this communication should be coming from? So on the heels of that, Michelle, I'll I'll toss it back to you for a minute. Um, What has, you know, the Department of Health here in Tennessee, um, you know, done in regards to the messaging and the communication strategy? How are you tackling some of what Michael just talked about? Well, the, and, and thank you uh, for the the praise of the program. Um, you know, we we wrote a plan back in October that uh, was very very intentional about how we were going to get vaccines to people um, who were at highest risk, not just by age or by occupation, but because of their zip code um, and because of their circumstances. And so we um, factored into 
our vaccine distribution plan, um, identifying those areas where uh, your zip code can determine your health outcome. Um, for example, in, in Haywood County, uh, which is in the western part of the state, um, they have no hospital. They have, I think, three nursing homes. Um, their population is more than 50% African-American and their death rate is more than twice that of the state average from COVID-19. And so you know, that is a community where we want to make sure that we're getting messaging, local messaging, um, opportunities to be able to receive the vaccine. Um, so not just go to the health department, but finding partners that can take the vaccine places where people might be able to walk to get it um, Lake County in, in northwestern Tennessee is one of the poorest counties in, in the entire country. Um, it's a very distressed area, and, and you know they have a, a population in that county that um, I think about one-sixth of it is, is the prison inmates um, there. So um, challenges in getting those communities to, one, understand the importance of getting the vaccine, um, but then also you know our job is to make sure that we can get it um, out to the people people that need to be able to receive it and um and you know exactly to the point of making sure that the right messengers are there um we have a a um, office here of uh, minority health and disparities elimination that is working very hard with our faith-based communities, especially uh, African-American and Hispanic churches um, and other places of worship across the state to not only um, help identify those messengers who look like the population that we want to message to, um, but who are also willing to stand up pods and vaccination events at those non-traditional sites um, specifically for those populations so that they feel welcome there, so that the people who are administering those vaccines are of their community. Um, and so hopefully we can um, encourage them to, to get vaccinated and help protect themselves and, and their communities. Great. Thanks, Michelle. So I was, I was just... Go ahead, I was just going to add on to that, um, and I think she, you know, Michelle really highlighted something very important is, is that these communities, you know, we're talk, we're looking at communities that have three or three to four times the hospitalization rate of, you know, um, reference communities, or or about two to three times the death rate, um, and there's a lot of concern in the communities about history, historical injustice, and social justice. And one of the things that you know a lot of Black professionals have been trying to to point out is that some of the strongest, possibly the strongest thing you can do um, in support of justice for these communities is to get vaccinated. If you're in the communities, if you're talking about restoring the balance, one of some of the strongest things you can do is to stand up, get vaccinated, and protect the people you love. And and that message, you know being communicated um, by, by social, professional, or cultural leaders is, is, is essential. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Schaefer, what about from your um, perspective there at Duke? What's the, the messaging been, you know, coming out of Duke? Well, I think, uh, <clears throat> I don't know if I, I want to speak necessarily to our messaging specifically, but, I, you know, we, I think we're struggling just as much as everybody Quite frankly, we're trying to figure out uh, how to craft messaging, and I think we understand that it's you know everybody's different in how they interpret the same information. I, I think you know maybe you know my brain 
works like Mike's brain and I can look at the data and decide for myself what the risk of me getting the virus is versus the risk of this vaccine is. And, uh, you know, I understand the, the bigger important, uh, you know, window of it. Whereas, you know, there are other people, uh, you know, for, for instance, I like to think about it. There's this moral foundations theory that suggests that for people who, you know, every decision that we make, <clears throat> you have to decide whether it's right or wrong. And different people can look at the same information and decide two different things. Uh, and, and it's not because one is dumber than the other necessarily, but it's, it's, the, it's this innate thing inside of us that, that help us decide what is right and wrong. And, and I think there are different types of people, for instance, like there are those that uh, have a, a strong moral foundation for liberty versus oppression. And so if the government says, whoever the government is, whether it's Biden or Trump says, you need to get this vaccine, they're gonna push back on it. Whereas somebody else who has moral foundation based on purity, uh, then if, if you tell me, tell them that there, this is something other than the natural virus, then they're gonna push back on it. And, and so, whereas there's people that have this moral foundation that's, uh, that you know, points towards altruism, the, the most good for the most amount of people, even if there's a risk to a certain small amount of people, like that, that tends to be what I think most healthcare workers lean towards. And so just kind of like thinking and understanding that people are, are making rational decisions, it's always gonna be come down to a, a moral decision for them because it's a very personal thing. And so just, I think the worst thing we can do as healthcare facility leaders is just put out an education campaign and think that that's gonna reach everyone. And then everyone doesn't listen to this education campaign is not smart enough to, to, to understand it. And so we just need to do more education. Whereas- no, I, oh, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, you don't go, I mean, I, I think that's, it, it's just understanding who we're dealing with and who uh, you, you want to, like, like, let me just give you one example of uh, masking campaign. So uh, <clears throat> IDSA, the Infectious Disease Society of America, uh, very often, will publish this masking campaign that says, hashtag mask up America and it's American flag on their face. And that appeals to me because I have some you know, level of moral foundation that is based on patriotism or loyalty to my country. And so that appeals to me. And so that type of messaging will, will work more towards people like me, I guess. And so, for instance, my brother, on the other hand, who lives is a mid thirties, uh, lives in Atlanta. Uh, you know, the appeal to normalcy to him will matter more. He said, "If you tell me I can then go into a nice restaurant without having to wear a mask and hang out with friends, then I'll get my vaccine. But otherwise, I don't think I need it." And so that that appeal to normalcy is another thing that I think will work. And so I think it's just important to kind of hear people and and in our situation we're doing surveys to check which different types of messaging works best using different behavioral interventions and we actually have behavioral scientists helping us with this that I think is uh, underutilized um, 
resource uh, in, in many vaccine hesitancy um, arenas. Yeah, no, thanks very much. And that was really um, insightful from all three of you in regards to the different variables that are at play. And we talk a lot here in regards to some of the educational content that we try to produce in regards to focusing on the audience, right? Who is it that we're actually trying to communicate with? Um, and I think Michael mentioned it, but you all spoke to it, sort of a multimodality approach to communication and how you're going to reach you know, the largest number of people possible. So on the heels of that, just for fun, because we have our own fun list here about vaccine myths and things that people have said that vaccines cause. And so we're gonna go around the table and I just gonna ask each one of you to share, you know, some of the, the myths about vaccines that you've heard out there. Um, and then we'll come back to, um, in regards to how do we make this a little bit more understandable in a minute. But Schaefer, I'll start with you since you're up there on the screen. What are some of the things that you've heard out there um, in regards to vaccine myths? Well, I, I think the, the thing that is uh, just plagues me uh, most is the this concept of vaccines and the long-term effects that we don't know yet. Uh, and I, I feel like this stems from the whole MMR uh, mix-up with Andrew Wakefield and uh, back in the late 90s and this just complete falsification of data largely to gain notoriety for himself. And this, that just, and I just, after listening to Michelle's podcast uh, this week, I know that that whole like cohort probably lights a fire in her uh, as well, but this is just something that penetrates, uh, you know, even ed highly educated people today, they still worry about the things, the neurologic effects of this vaccine years down the road. And you're like, well, this vaccine only lasts in your body for a matter of hours. So, I, you know, I really, if there's anything I could eliminate as far as myths go, it would be that one that's penetrated for the past several decades, unfortunately. Yeah. <clears throat> Michelle, what about you? Yeah, it's, it's pretty amazing the, the impact that Wakefield um, has had, you know, here 20 years later um, and, and that he still um, has a, a hold on the population um, it's it's just uh, it's it's very disheartening. Um, so I think for me, it's it's the uh, rumor that this vaccine causes infertility in women. Um, this uh, comes from the HPV vaccine um, myths that came around, and unfortunately, HPV vaccine started out as a as a government mandate in Texas for young girls to have to get HPV vaccine, and and it uh, it was a, a disaster of a rollout for what has turned out to be a vaccine that is almost 100% effective in preventing cancers that are caused by HPV. Um, and so there were rumors that went around because I think um, you know the HPV vaccine is related to sex in some way, um, that that somehow getting the HPV vaccine would impact your sex organs and make you uh, infertile. And so uh, we've been combating that for 
10 plus years now. Um, and, and now I'm seeing this even before the, the COVID-19 vaccines hit the ground in America. Um, there was a meme going around that the GSK COVID-19 vaccine, which hasn't even been released yet, um, was causing infertility in, in women. And um, that is completely maddening to me that, um, that, that rumors like that go around because no mother, um, no parent is going to want to do something that could potentially impact um, you know, her daughter's ability to, to have a family down the road. And um, I think it's unfortunately a very strong and emotional message for people to hear and completely 100 percent false. Um, and it's 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 just really damaging. Thank you, Michael. What about you? So it's hard to pick one, um, <laughs> but I will I will say I think probably one of the more dramatic um, myths I've seen is that COVID is a hoax, um, and therefore the vaccine is a is a scam and a and some sort of long con. Um, and and you know to Schaefer's point, these beliefs can be so ingrained. I've had patients about to be put on a ventilator. When I'm about to put them on a ventilator, they've been in the ICU, all other treatments have failed, and they're looking us in the eye and telling us, yeah, this is a hoax. And so, you know, I always give them credit because you, you can say whatever you want, right? But when it comes down to brass tacks and it's your health in question, typically people shape up. Um, but if, um, you know, if, if it comes down to, accepting the treatments that are, your doctors are providing and you're in a death's door and you stick to your beliefs, then you know those beliefs are deeply entrenched. Um, so that's one. I mean, I think the other ones that I, I've, I've always, I've just never quite understood and I keep scratching my head about is the whole thing about the COVID vaccine being some sort of conduit for 5G telewaves and, um, and having microchips, that stuff I, I don't know what to do with. Um, but but yes, <laughs> very hard. The, the microchip one, um, you know, having having administered COVID nineteen vaccines, this this one makes me laugh because it's it's either a five dose vial or a ten dose vial. So we would have to be really skilled to make sure we got one microchip in each one of those vaccine doses, um, or it's like chocolate chip cookie dough. You know, we're at the the very last one. You either have all the chocolate chips or you have none of the chocolate chips, um, and and so. <laughs> Um, that's that's my favorite part of that whole microchip thing. That and the Bill Gates stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. There's there's, yes. there's no Gates. lack of uh, no lack of conspiracy theories. That's that's for sure. So the, I know we're kind of coming up on the top of the hour, but the last thing I want to spend just a few minutes on, and I'll pass it around to all three of you, is um, something that we get asked a lot, and you know we get asked a lot when we're going to get to this point of you know herd immunity within the United States and you know, if you think about 330 million people in the United States to get to that 70, 80% mark, you're talking about 250 million people or so. And so we just kind of use this um, picture here to kind of represent what that would look like. If the red people are contagious, if the orange people are susceptible, then obviously what you're trying to do is to get to that blue state where you're either vaccinated or you've developed natural immunity. And I know this is impossible to forecast with any kind of accuracy, but I'm going to ask all three of you individually to speculate on when you think we're going to get there. And so, Schaefer, I'll, I'll throw it out to you first. Well, maybe I'm the ever optimist. I think we'll get there uh, around August. 
Okay, good. <laughs> Michelle, what do you think? Uh, you know, we're we're already seeing, I think, the impact um, of of the vaccine. Uh, you know, in 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 Tennessee, um, we have vaccinated more than fifty percent of the population of people who are the age seventy five and older, and we've seen a dramatic drop in our death rates and hospitalizations among that population. Um, and so, I'm I'm pretty optimistic too. I think I think we'll get there end of summer, um, as long as the vaccine supply holds up and we don't have something happen that takes one of these vaccines offline. Great. Michael? I was actually voting for July, um, July, August, um, just especially looking at the curves. Now, of course, that's presuming we don't have a variant that goes crazy and goes out of control. But, but I, looking at the curves, it, it really looks like a lot of it, this particular surge is going to be petered out by mostly late April. And then, you know, it's probably going to smother along for a bit and then hopefully, um, the immunity will kick in. Yeah, that's great. I like the optimism. We've got sort of universal optimism across across the board. Jason, what do you think? So, well, before I get to that, a couple of things just came to mind. Um, you know, as as those curves taper off, um, you know, I guess are we worried about our patient population being less concerned about then getting the vaccine? So, you we've we've talked about some of these. Uh, these populations that are already kind of on the fence. Um, as the curves die down, um, you know, I think there is some concern out there that as we get a little bit lower, people will say, look, it, it's down, you know, we're heading into summer. We saw what, what happened last year and, and there is some concern uh, from my perspective on that because we let our guard down a little bit. Um, so that, that that's that's partially a concern for me um, the other thing that Emily and I were talking about, she's on my, on my research team, and we were talking about, you know, what, what diseases in history have we gotten to herd immunity without a vaccine? Um, I don't know that there are a lot of uh, diseases out there where we've been able to do that without a vaccine, meaning let's let it run its course and let's, let's just see what happens uh, by exposing the population. Um, so I think keeping those those couple things at the forefront, um, I, I'm worried about letting the guard down and the message kind of waxing off a little bit as we uh, as as the the curve trends down. Um, uh, you know, I, I think any time in that in that time zone sounds uh, pretty reasonable to me based on on the curves that we've seen. Uh, but I think in order to get there, we can't see a drop off in, in vaccination rates. I know that we've been averaging somewhere around, I think 1.6 million a day uh, for the last few weeks. I know that last week was a little bit lower because of the, uh, the uh, distribution issues that, that occurred, but we've got to keep that up in order to hit that, that level. Great, thanks Jason. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust's Candid Conversation podcast. Please visit healthtrustpg.com forward slash the source forward slash candid dash conversations to listen to more episodes of our podcast and visit the Health Trust education page at education.healthtrustpg.com for more information on COVID-19. 
vaccines and vaccine distribution.